Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll meet John Bainbridge Jr., a former Baltimore Sun reporter. His new book is Gun Barons, historical portraits of the inventors who started the companies that became Colt, Smith & Wesson, Winchester, and Remington. We talk about the role these men's firearms played in U.S. westward expansion, the Civil War, and other events in U.S. history, and how these inventors and their companies helped establish America's gun culture. Author John Bainbridge, Jr., you have a new book, Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America and the Men That Invented Them. What will readers get in your new book? They'll get a sense of who these characters were. And I say characters, I'm talking about names that uh, people are familiar with, such as Winchester, Colt, Smith & Wesson, uh, Remington. There were actual people who created things, who mass-produced guns. And I try to give a little sense of who these people were, uh, as well as the era in which they thrived. Uh, there's also uh, another fellow who, frankly, was the guy I was most interested in. His name is Christopher Minor Spencer. Now, his is a name that people don't recognize today except for gun historians. But he invented a repeating rifle that was used to great effect during the Civil War. And he competed with Oliver Winchester to get uh, some market share. So it's basically looking at these characters, their era, uh, and where guns I guess where guns fit into the development of the of the country uh, in it in mass production and in combat because there's there's combat in this book. What time frame does it cover? It starts at 1844, which is I guess a kind of an arbitrary time, but I, it it was when uh, a number of these folks were beginning were starting out, um, it, and then it goes through 1876. In 1876, I picked because of the uh, Battle of Little Bighorn, which, um, and also because 1876 was the centennial celebration of the country, which uh, happened, uh, which was a great exhibition in uh, Philadelphia at that time, which celebrated machines, it celebrated the country. So it it covers that that period of time in which there was a great deal of. intellectual ferment, uh, certainly uh, ferment with infantry, and uh, that's the period of time in which the uh, country expanded dramatically uh, from the East Coast, and the Mexican War took place, and then the country went from East Coast all the way to West Coast. And so it's really a, I would say it's a pivotal time in the country's history. Researching and writing a book and putting it through book production takes quite a while. Uh, in, in an accident of timing, your book is coming to market while the country is once again in the middle of a big debate about gun ownership. What would gun barons add to people's understanding of America and guns? In order to approach, once again, we're facing this these uh, mass shootings, once again, we're seeing the slaughter of innocents. And once again, there's talk about the Second Amendment and individual rights in the United States. Now, my book doesn't even mention the Second Amendment, but the notion of the individual freedom and uh, the, uh, I guess, devotion of the early colonists and the early revolutionaries to individual uh, firearms ownership comes through in the book. And where whatever steps this 
this country takes in its effort to control firearms, a knowledge of the past, a knowledge of the early history of the country and its relationship with firearms is important. Now, do we want to change that um, that perspective? Do we want to change the way we look at guns from uh, from now on? Maybe, um, maybe not in some quarters. But knowledge of that past is crucial. There was a uh, uh, there was a notion that that the um, the Continental Congress, I think, it was the year before um, the Declaration of Independence, um, sent a message to King George that said, uh, "Men trained to arms from their infancy um, and animated by the love of liberty will afford neither a cheap nor easy conquest." I think that you know, to go back and see the way guns were guns were treated back then is important. They were also just tools in many people's in many people's minds and certainly in the part of the average citizen they were tools um guns were advertised in the local press as uh, which you wouldn't see that much today uh the latest and best inventions of firearms to make them shoot faster uh, more effectively uh, with greater power those appeared in the mainstream media back then and that's that's different but uh, uh, being aware of what was going on before, I think, is important. Yeah, and I, this is a follow-up that um, you may really have explained, but uh, the United States is unique in the highest per capita gun ownership in the world. Uh, the, the next is at seventh spot with Canada, seven spots down. And in polling, 45% of American households own guns. Does your research into history help readers understand this unique feature of american culture i hope it does it's not a central uh, it's not a central focus of my of the book but i think uh, in the introduction i set up the notion of the the private individual having a gun for self-defense for defense of the uh, of the of the state of the community there were militias back then, uh, before the, before the revolution and afterwards, and that all able-bodied men—you were talking about eighteen and above—had to arm themselves um, and be part of the militia. So that that, that sort of ethos, um, I think, helps understand to a degree uh, the way people feel about guns uh, today, the way many Americans feel about guns today. It is unique. I mean, we are we are unusual in the per capita ownership of guns. We are also somewhat unique, I think, in the respect of free speech, um, despite many claims by other countries to to honor the freedom of speech. That's problematic when it comes to guns. What do we do about it? That's beyond my ken. We found you in the C-SPAN video archives talking about your very first book. It, this was taped outside the Blair House. Your book was about the attempted assassination of Harry Truman. I just want to play a short clip. It's about a minute long. And then come back and talk to you about the linkage between the two pro projects, if any. He was walking pretty much near where we are right now, walking towards Blair House with the idea of assassinating the president of the United States. He was not a professional assassin. He had a Walther P-38 take-home gun from the uh, from uh, World War II, uh, load, loaded with 9mm shells. He really didn't know how to use it. Walked up towards the front entrance, mm -hmm. and right about here was a, was a guardhouse. It kind of it was just sort of a boxy thing with a door and a roof, looking like a kind of like an outhouse, and it mirrored the one on the other side. But the gun goes off, and miracle of miracles, it hits Don Birdzell in the knee. 
Now, Birdzell drops, but then continues to go out into Pennsylvania Avenue. Why? He start, because he's trying to draw the fire away. And so he starts shooting back. These two other men start shooting. Floyd Boring has pulled out his detective special that he always carried with him, and he starts shooting. Joe Davison starts shooting, and for a moment, there's gunfire absolutely everywhere. John Bainbridge, any linkage between these two projects for you? Guns? I, I, mean, I guess the linkage was that, that, that having worked on that book, uh, the, the, the main author was uh, Stephen Hunter. In fact, he was the fellow who did the writing. I, he was a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning film critic for the Washington Post and has written a number of, uh, a number of uh, thrillers. Uh, that have done quite well, one of which was turned into a movie. But, and I was, I'm a friend of his, and he said, well, if you could help me work on a nonfiction book about this shooting, uh, I would be interested. I also know something about firearms. So I worked that out with him for a while, and I found that the research so engaging, so, so much fun, I decided to try to spin off something else in the, in the gun area where I have, some, I have some knowledge. I'm far from an expert. And uh, I started to research uh, Oliver Winchester. And I thought, well, there is an interesting character. He's big, uh, big name in the gun business. He also was Lieutenant Governor of Connecticut for a while, uh, politician, uh, and someone who, about whom no one's ever written a biography. So I thought that was a chance. So I dug around in Oliver Winchester, and I found out, to my surprise, that there was very little information on him. Part of that, I believe, came from information I received somewhat reliably that um, much of his records were destroyed uh, shortly after he died. Uh, somebody else had tried to do a biography of Winchester and gave up. Uh, so I said, well, let me just bring in some of the other gun characters and see if I could put them into, that, into a, a narrative that would cover that era when they were all very active and see if I can make something out of it. And to, to my delight, I found that I really could, at least I, I hope I succeeded in this, in, the, the, in that period of time that where there was such vibrant activity in the country, with patents, uh, ideas, development of firearms, and the rise of the country as an industrial power. So that's, that, that would be the linkage, I guess, a couple, both the interest in firearms and some knowledge, as well as having uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, serious research, unlike uh, research I had ever done before. What uh, your acknowledgments list so many archivists, Park Service rangers, historic sites, and I'm other to sources. Blame them for things that go wrong. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just wondering, though, uh, of all the research you did, what's the single most surprising thing you found out in telling this story? I guess the most surprising thing was I, I uncovered. I uncovered uh, some. Interesting letters. Um, I uncovered a, a letter that uh, um, Mary Todd Lincoln wrote to Gideon Wells, trying to push um, a steamboat manufacturer uh, on him uh, to to help with the war effort. Um, but there were, I guess, one of the things that surprised me most was that Abraham Lincoln. He was a gun guy. He was interested. Excuse me for playing with this. He was a uh, somebody who was interested in firearms. He wasn't a hunter, but he was fascinated with uh, mechanical uh, things. Uh, and we know about that. Uh, that's been written about before. But I didn't realize was how much interested he was in guns. 
uh, and and in 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 the mechanisms uh, that produced uh, bullets that went far and hard. I ran into a little story of him testing a gun called a militrailleuse. I think I've got the French pronunciation right. It was sort of like a Gatling gun. It was it, it was a multi-shot weapon, um, which was very novel in its time. It was not American. It was developed in France. France had a lot of a lead in a number of things uh, early on. So Lincoln was out there testing it with a bunch of other people, and he was cranking the thing, and the bullets were would bounce off. They, they were very apparently very low-powered, so they would bounce off what they were being shot at and they would sort of skitter themselves around the feet of the uh, of the of the spectators and Lincoln thought that was hilarious so uh, but that was something and he would go to the Washington Naval Yard and shoot occasionally with a fellow named uh, John Dahlgren who is um, a commandant of the US Naval Yard the Washington Naval Yard so that that intrigued me um, but also I guess what I guess not an individual thing that surprised me but these gun creators, these inventors, they were all real risk takers. Um, I guess you have to be a risk taker to succeed, uh, and you've got to stick your neck out. Um, but there were people like Colt. His first, his first uh, firearm venture failed. He finally, he, but he kept going. He kept on to the patents, and finally the Mexican War came along. And he teamed up with a rather flamboyant, charismatic, young um, Texas Ranger who was fighting uh, on behalf of the United States against Mexico, and they developed a new revolver. Uh, and he got, uh, got a contract for it. And there were several examples like that. Another thing that really surprised me, uh, which I guess is kin to risk-taking, is that some of these characters made contracts to make guns when they had no way of actually making them. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a land to build it on. They didn't have machinery. They didn't have a workforce. Uh, somebody like, there was a firm up in Windsor, Vermont, called Robbins & Lawrence, and they got a contract to make 10,000 uh, rifles uh, in 1844, I think, uh, 1845. And again, they didn't have any didn't have any place to make them. But the fellow named Robbins, who was the Robbins of Robbins and Lawrence, he was a very young guy who'd made a ton of money in lumber, and he decided to approach the government to make this to make the contract. And they did. And he said, "Okay, now we got to find a place." So they built. They bought land of the of the shores of the tributary of the Connecticut River. They built a building, and they got the machinery, and they right near where the water wheels. They produced uh, guns based on uh, on water power back then. They didn't have steam power, uh, at least not there. And they turned out their ten thousand rifles uh, at ten dollars and ninety cents a piece, eighteen months ahead of schedule. Um, during the Civil War, there's this fellow Spencer, who I told you is one of my favorite character. Uh, he he uh, got some backing from a people named Cheney who had silk mills, and they eventually approached. Uh, they were trying to get a contract with the government to make these repeating rifles, which were very novel, very original. They weren't getting very far, but finally they got a contract. And again, this is in the late 
very last weeks of 1861, the war was underway. They didn't have any place to build them. So they ended up having to rent a uh, form a company. They rented a part of a Boston piano factory and began to turn out the rifles. And that to me is extraordinary. You usually, uh, of course, I'm not a businessman, uh, but you usually, when you start getting a contract for somebody, you said you can do it, but you got to show how you can do it. You got to show that you can do it. Some of these guys just plain didn't. They took a gamble and bike, but by Lord, they succeeded. Uh, Most of the stories of these um, early barons all seem to take place in the um, upper New York State, uh, Connecticut region of the country. Is that coincidental? It's not coincidental at all. That that area uh, was, is the Connecticut River Valley, and it had a strong flowing river. It had the tributaries like the one I mentioned that um, that the uh, Robinson Lawrence people used that powered water wheels. You also had a lot of skilled mechanics in that area. So what, what it turned out was the number of the of number of businesses were really fun, were were taking off in that area, especially small shops, but then the bigger shops as well. When Robbins and Lawrence produced their factory, when they finally got the contract, they had the biggest building in the biggest uh, building in um, in Windsor, Vermont. Another thing that uh, another major enterprise in this Connecticut River Valley was the Springfield Armory. Now, that was a sort of government project that made guns uh, starting in the late 18th century. And that, too, was uh, relying on water power in that area. In fact, there was so much activity in gun making along the Connecticut River Valley that uh, it was dubbed Gun Valley by some. Uh, I guess a comparison could be made to today as a, it was the Silicon Valley of its time. But it was enormously fruitful. And you, you also had enormous amount of sharing of information between the Springfield Armory, the government armory, and private, uh, private uh, makers. Uh, patents were not that much protected. Uh, they didn't try to protect the patents as much. It was all sharing back and forth to produce, produce firearms. The real insistence in fighting over patents came a little bit later. So over the period of time that your book covers, what were the biggest drivers of innovation in arms production? Well, first of all, the marketplace, the, uh, the demand. The Mexican War came along and suddenly the, the uh, country swept west. And then, of course, that, was, that ended in 1848, uh, in February of 1848. But you also had, had a buildup in arms in, 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 in local in state governments and in the federal government because the sectional disputes over slavery were really, uh, really booming. But you also had the inventiveness in the, um, in the gun industry that they were trying to make something that could shoot fast and could shoot often without reloading. That was being worked on in France, and it was also being worked on here. If they could make a gun that could shoot rapidly, be a force multiplier, some, ter some terms, uh, some term is used, then you could have a more effect effective army, uh, and the, more, the faster a, a soldier could shoot, 
the more destruction he could wreak uh, on the opponent, the more success he would have in battle. So the focus was on creating a fast-firing weapon. Colt did it with his revolver, but his revolver, when it came out, you had to load the cylinder. The cylinder of the Colt revolver had five and then later six sort of little holes. And those holes were filled with powder and ball, and each one had to be loaded separately. The whole idea of making a fast-firing weapon more efficient would be a self-contained cartridge. That means you could take, today we, have, we, we treat them as standard, they're normal. You should put those in and you just take out the expended cartridge, but you don't have to fuss with each one. That was the great challenge, and that's what people like Smith, Wesson, Winchester, they were all working on to try to make, make better, and they eventually succeeded. I guess one of another one of the progenitors of that was a was a curious fellow. Another thing that surprised me, by the way, uh, is how varied some of the inventors were. Spencer, who I talked about, my favorite guy, he invented all kinds of things: uh, automatic screw machines. Uh, he invented uh, silk winding machines. He, at the time he died in 1922, he had 42 patents to his name. So he would just invent, he couldn't stop inventing. He also invented a steam car in 1862, which he would drive around, I think it was Boston, uh, didn't need a horse, it was a horseless carriage. And the boiler on it would put, would put steam under pressure through, uh, through pipes that would drive the wheels. Now, those pipes were factory reject Spencer rifle barrels. He'd say, well, we're not going to shoot bullets out of them. Let me make a car out of them. So he made this car. And I find that fascinating that these guys would tinker so. He's credited, by the way, with having an early automobile accident when he sideswiped a milk wagon. But uh, that was one of his inventions. He also had a fellow named Walter Hunt, who, again, his name is not known today. But he invented all kinds of things, uh, including a street sweeper, uh, shoes that could walk on the ceiling. Uh, he invented a cross-stitch sewing machine, which he didn't push. He should have. Uh, and a thing that he called, a thing that you could drink called Hunt's Restorative Cordial, which uh, cured bowel complaints in their worst form and could give you energy. But he also invented a gun. And he invented what I call a self-contained cartridge. And the self-contained cartridges fit under the, in a tube under the barrel. That's the way we think, that's what we think of when we think of a Winchester lever-action rifle today. They has all these little cartridges lined up under a barrel. You operate a lever, and they go forward and into the chamber, and the old one gets ejected. That's what Hunt came up with, and he came up with that in the 1840s. Um, he sold the patent, though. Um, he was, he, he, uh, it was that patent that was actually used that eventually resulted in some Smith & Wesson guns and Winchester guns. Uh, but he had to sell his patent because he had to keep his four children and wife in, in food and clothing. We, there's one thing that Walter Hunt is remembered for, uh, and that is he was fiddling with a piece of wire one day, uh, fretting over who knows what, perhaps paying a, a, a debt to a, a draftsman for one of his patent drawings. And he fashioned it so that the little, it would spring back and forth. And then he, he hooked a little piece of it, made a little hook out of a piece of it, put one of the, piece, one of the 
ends under it and held it together. And he thought, well, I got something here. He called it a dress pin and he patented it. That today is what we call the safety pin. So Walter Hunt is remembered in industrial production for two things. One is the safety pin and the other is the gun that, uh, that, that he never made any money on, but that a whole lot of other people did. In general, did innovation in ammunition and innovation in the arms themselves happen at the same place, or were they c- concurrent with different tinkerers and inventors? They happened at different, they, they happened basically at the same time, uh, basically. Uh, the, the self-contained cartridge, um, it was something actually that Colt didn't pay much attention to until much later. But you had, you had people working on the, the ammunition. Um, Wesson, Daniel Wesson uh, was working on that. Uh, and you had people working on the mechanisms as well. And they, they were, it was really about the same time. Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson got together, and they were both working on it. Uh, Winchester hired somebody uh, eventually named uh, uh, Benjamin Tyler Henry, who made enormous strides, and his gun, uh, his his gun with the Winchester, uh, helped to ensure Winchester's success. But it was really much about the same time. But you, another thing that I found interesting, um, which your your question brings up, is that there is there we have a myth in this country about the uh, sole inventor. You know, there's a eureka moment. Some inventor's sitting alone in the, his, his or her shop and suddenly says, Eureka, I've got, the, I've got the solution to the world's problems in this area. Well, that's pretty rare. Uh, you don't have that that much. What you have is other people building on inventions that other people made, such as, I mean, the fellow I mentioned, Walter Hunt. It was his invention that was built on by, um, by Smith and Wesson, or before them by a couple of other people. They, they acquired the patent and refined it. Uh, Samuel F. B. Morse, who was actually a friend of Samuel Colt's, he didn't really invent the, uh, the um, telegraph. He improved the speed of communications over, over wires by using a coiling method developed by somebody else. And Eli Whitney, who used to be given credit for the cotton gin, or some places still is, he just refined the way you were separating seeds from cotton. So you have inventors building on other people's inventions all the time. Um, but so I, I found that curious. But you all, but you had it happening, so far as the guns and the cartridges, at pretty much the same time. The military uh, is certainly the biggest customer in each uh, generation of the story that you tell. And, and I guess I'm wondering if the t- t- pattern is was generally the military was looking to. Uh, fight a particular war uh, and had a particular need, the inventors supplied it, and then after the war it moved into the commercial and civilian market? Uh, you, yes, to an, ex- to, 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 yes, to an extent. After the Civil War, for example, a number of major gun makers, uh, they had to refit. Um, Win- Oliver Winchester decided to uh, um, push his guns elsewhere. He, he was continuing to push his guns for the military. Um, uh, in, in other countries. Uh, but he also uh, produced a gun that uh, went west with the, uh, with the increasing westward expansion. He marketed it that way. Uh, they also marketed to people who wanted protection in, um, uh, you know, for themselves. Smith & Wesson certainly did that uh, early on. 
But uh, the military was the big customer. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes people they got overextended. Which you invest a whole lot of money in the in new in new in new, in new machinery, uh, new new productive capacity to solve one customer like the military, and suddenly the military is not there as a customer anymore. Well, then uh, it causes problems. That caused problems for a number of uh, companies at the end of the Civil War. And I think, if I remember correctly, I'm getting out of my depth here. Um, I think that ha- also happened to Winchester after World War One. Uh, they suddenly had a lot of useless machinery that, that caused them serious trouble. But the civilian market was something that uh, that uh, Colt and Winchester and Remington and Smith and Wesson they all pitched to because um, you know, if you lose the military, you've got to have other people out there who are going to buy your product. Why not the person who you tell they need it? So if you'll bear with me, uh, we won't have time to go into depth, and I want people to buy, the, buy and read the book. What I wanted to do is just do a quick survey of the six major characters, just a line or two about each one of them. I'm going to name them, and, uh, and then maybe you can tell me a few characteristics about them and what made they, they were singularly known for in arms. So let's start with the person that seemed to me that got the most uh, ink in your book, and that's Samuel Colt. Uh, some of the things you said about him, he's a showman, a wild child, uh, a desire for success, he, a hustler. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Samuel Colt and what his contribution as an individual was. Well, he was he was all of that. Uh, he, he was a he was a actually driven fellow. And he was also he was also uh, full of tall tales. I mean, you never quite completely believe what he said. He was always trying to play with the angles but what he what he had what he had patented back in 1836 was a multi-shot revolver there were multi-shot guns at the time um, but they weren't they weren't that useful there was a thing called a pepper box which had a bunch of barrels all wrapped up uh, in one in one gun that would they would turn the barrels and each one would go off in sequence. But that was clumsy. It was heavy and inaccurate. And sometimes all the barrels would go off at once, which was pretty, could be pretty devastating to everybody. Colt had a revolver that lined up with a barrel, with each cylinder stop, with each cylinder hole lining up with a barrel when you, when you cock the handle, cock the hammer. And when the, it went off, you cock the hammer again and it turned. That was extremely efficient for its time, and that was his major contribution. And he had that patent, and um, he, uh, his, as I mentioned before, his first company went bankrupt uh, in 1842, I believe. But he was back in business um, shortly thereafter with more revolvers, and they were successful, and he sold them to England. He sold them all over the place. So his con- his major contribution was a revolver that worked and was accurate. Uh, before we leave him, you know, always think of Henry Ford as the person who invented the assembly line, but you credit Samuel Colt with, as an industrialist, developing the first modern assembly line in his production of arms. Yes, he, well, he was, and he picked up on things that were developed in the Springfield, in the Springfield Armory. He also had, but he also had a division of labor and specialized machines uh, so much so that the that the uh, the the, he, the British were uh, astonished by his ability to produce um, produce machine made uh, machine made uh, weapons, machine made parts. 
that they invited him to speak before the Great Society of Engineers in London, uh, which he did. So, yes, that's right. I, I should have mentioned that. It's certainly, he was a, a, a giant in the field of mass production, um, well-known. He actually eventually opened up a factory in London uh, in the 1850s. It didn't last more than a couple of years um, for several reasons. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he was very... Uh, very foresighted when it came to mass production. And part of that, by the way, is attributable to somebody he hired, a fellow named Elisha Colt. I mean, Elisha Root, um, Elisha King Root, who was a, uh, a, a mechanical genius. So yeah, Colt, Colt shares some credit. He has to share some credit. A couple more things about Colt uh, that caught my attention. First of all, he employed women in his assembly line. Yep, how common, he did. How common was that? Well, it got, it got more common later. He did that. Uh, in fact, a lot of companies, Winchester did as well, hired women in making the ammunition. Uh, also, sometimes they could pay them, pay them cheaper. You don't have to pay them as much. But they, that was beginning to happen. Uh, you uh, see, Winchester brought in brought in women to work. Of course, he had Winchester had um, a shirt business beforehand. But you you did have that. That was unusual at the time. Uh, but it it made sense, uh, especially for. Uh, for what he would consider unskilled labor, specific tasks uh, that he didn't need a trained craftsman for. And there were more women who could provide that role than men at that time. And perhaps in presaging what we call now the military-industrial conflux, he had uh, no shyness about lobbying politicians, according to your telling of the tale, including Uh Franklin Pierce. Yeah. Oh, he, he would lobby everybody. He used to he would give uh, gifts um, to people. He was a great gift giver. Um, he would he would engrave the arms uh, in, in the most flamboyant manner, put them in fancy uh, wooden cases, and present them to people he thought it could do him some good. He gave uh, he gave a uh, a, a wonderfully engraved uh, couple of revolvers to uh, Prince Albert uh, in England, uh, uh, Queen Victoria's husband. He gave them to Tsar Nicholas um, of in in Russia. Uh, he gave them to Franklin Pierce. Uh, he, he he thought that they would do him some good, and he would lobby like he would lobby like mad. In fact, he tried to bribe. Uh, somebody in the ordnance department long before he really got got uh, his, his his second wind so much so that uh, his cousin who i think was treasurer uh remonstrated him in writing and said i don't want i don't want uh, you to to get contracts by by passing money to people or by passing gifts um so no colt was colt was very happy to uh, curry favor wherever he could how wealthy did he eventually grow the exact dollar figure, I don't remember. Something, something pops up in my head is like fifteen million or so. Um, but in the course of the time, he was one of the wealthiest people in Connecticut. He was enormously wealthy, and um, and uh, when he died, he left a considerable estate uh, that um, benefited substantially. His widow, whose name was Elizabeth Colt, who was a uh, who was uh, actually took a seat on the board of the Colt Company. Um, and uh, was was a, a, a was a factor in the coal business for a while. He he built uh, a baronial home that he named Armsmere, mm-hmm. and I, I found on the internet that the National uh, Park Service is in the final stages of completing legislative requirements for moving from an authorized park to an established unit of the National Park Service for his home. Have you been? 
I have not been there. Um, you know, when I, mean, I really should have, I've been many trips to the town, but I never went to Armsmere. I, I, I go there. I go there and um, I, I, I've never been to the, see the, the, the wonderful uh, blue dome uh, from the Colt factory. Uh, I went there and, and like the little busy little beaver researcher I was, I would disappear into the archives and, and, uh, and emerge only when I, could, uh, when I had, had to breathe and eat. So it was, uh, I, I should have taken a, a, tourist, uh, a tourist visit over there. I did, I did visit Little Bighorn, um, when, uh, but for the, uh, enjoy that for my final chapter. But no, I never visited Armsmere. That's what I have to do now. Maybe when it becomes an official, f- official site and they hold functions there, I'll come up and talk about gun barons. Sure, plus post-COVID, what wasn't much visiting to be done while you were writing the book. No, uh, that was a pain. That was a pain for some of the late research I had to do, too. So I, I wanted to just get snapshots, and I won't spend as much time as I did with Colt. Colt was just such a bigger, larger-than-life character among the people that you told. But l- help me pronounce Remington's first name. Well, I, I, I have never heard it spoken, but I have seen in a book that it was called Eliphalet. Elifalit so Remington the second. Now he that's was, right. He was one of the ones who was in New, in New York State in the Mohawk Valley. So what is his claim to fame? His claim to fame was uh, he was extremely successful, uh, I guess, entrepreneur, you could call it that. He was not involved early on in making, um, making uh, fast-firing cartridge weapons, but he was very good with steel. He, in, he worked with some uh, steel manu- – he made some steel rifle barrels that were uh, extremely good. And he, he was shipping uh, his rifle barrels uh, all across the region. And he eventually got a contract uh, to, to make rifles for the government. And did again, he did very well. Uh, he, and eventually went into making full guns. Uh, they were, he and his whole, and his family, he had, uh, he had sons that worked with him too. And they ended up being extremely productive uh, uh, entrepreneurs, not just in guns, but in agricultural tools and the rest of it. So that they became, um, they made uh, revolvers uh, for the Civil War. I think they were second only to Colt in what they could turn out. But they were essentially, he was a, a blacksmith who knew how to make rifle barrels and he knew how to make them very well. He also knew how to do business. Oliver Winchester, you referenced that he was a clothing retailer. How did he get into the gun business? Well, he, he, he was born in Massachusetts, came down to Baltimore, which is the area where I live, as a teenager, and eventually got into the clothing business, uh, was a carpenter for a while, and sold shirts. And it was doing pretty well here in Baltimore. But he decided... To to try to improve a men's shirt collars. He thought that if he could come up with a system where the suspenders were not be dragging on a collar, it would be a lot, lot more comfortable for men. He called it an evil. So he patented a shirt collar, a way of cutting the shirt collar, in uh, 1848, just about the same time this Mexican War ended. And he patented it. And began to produce it, and then hooked up with a fella in New York who was uh, 
very much into the clothing retail marketing uh, and importing business. And they formed a partnership and he began to make a ton of money with his uh, his uh, Winchester patented shirts. He wasn't interested in guns, not Winchester. But there's no record of that anyway. He he was interested in business and he knew about new things. So he got interested in, he thought, well, maybe there's money to be made in guns. And there was a small company operating it was, that had a novel weapon, uh, which was called the Volcanic. It was using a self-contained cartridge, and it was something that was being, wor- that was being made by people named Smith and Wesson. He decided to invest in it. So he came in and he got a couple of other people to invest. And he, that's what started him on gun business. And uh, over the course of some years, he got to learn, he got to learn more about guns. He eventually hired, uh, he eventually, Smith & Wesson eventually got bought out. And Winchester eventually took it over. Uh, and he eventually brought on this fellow named Henry who improved the, the self-contained cartridge, made it more powerful and produced what was then called a Henry rifle, just in time for the Civil War. And that's what really launched Winchester's fortune. And from then on, Winchester became a name in firearms from that moment until the time he died, and well beyond. Colts, Remington, Winchester were all singular names. How is it that Smith & Wesson is a name that we remember in partners, and how did their partnership come together? We're not sure exactly where they first met. It was probably when they were both working uh, for, it could be when they were both working up in Robbins and Lawrence, my famous, my Winchester, my Windsor, Vermont place. They were an interesting partnership. They were very different personalities. Uh, Smith was about 16 years older than Wesson, but they had both worked with novel guns. Smith uh, had, had been a bayonet, for, assistant bayonet forger at the Springfield Armory, and he, he did lots of grunt work in a large corporation and his a large uh, enterprise such as as uh, Springfield was and his family was also involved in it uh, but he was used to doing precise work long drug long tough hours and then he worked for another company and began to make repeating firearms and got interested in that Wesson he was somebody who was interested in guns. His father wanted to become a shoemaker, but he decided he didn't like that very much. And so he got apprenticed uh, uh, to his older brother, whose name was Edwin. Edwin was a maker of fine rifles. Uh, and uh, Daniel uh, was indentured. Now, he was actually officially indentured to his brother. The family signed papers. Uh, the father was supposed to be um, giving $200, $250 a month. Uh, and went, and in that uh, Daniel was to get food, get fed, clothed, taught. Um, so Daniel learned the fine art of making guns uh, and learned what to do in business. So they eventually crossed paths several times, but they both they they had a liking for each other apparently. They also knew they had sort of complementary talents, complementary skills, and they formed a partnership to produce a multi-shot weapon. And that's how it started. And they they both put in the money, and they both took out the money, and they eventually linked up to produce a gun uh, that uh, was a revolver with a what's called a board-through cylinder. It could take a cartridge from the, the rear end, which Colts at that time could not, 
and they patented it uh, together and their futures were linked until one of them retired. Uh, but their futures were linked uh, financially, uh, mechanically, and politically um, for the rest of their lives. They, when they died, uh, they were both, I think they were the two richest men in the state. You've referenced that the number six of the six people you profile is Christopher Spencer. You've talked about him a few times. He's the only person who hasn't survived in history with a, 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 a arms manufacturing name attached to him. Why not? Well, he had this—he had that marvelous Spencer repeating rifle, um, which, which worked well in the Civil War. It didn't survive the development of modern cartridges. That was, there were several reasons, several problems with it uh, after the Civil War. One thing was that there were so many of them made. He actually won the won the uh, unofficial contest with Winchester for guns used in this repeating guns used in the Civil War. But his repeating weapon couldn't take the large, heavy cartridges uh, of the time. It was not adopted by the military, though it was used to a certain extent out west. Custer's scouts used them. Uh, and so the, the company sort of foundered for a while. It tried to get into a couple of other, uh, other ventures, sporting rifles. But a, a, uh, a, an industrial shark came along and eventually ended up taking over the company uh, and all its assets and its patents. That shark was Oliver Winchester. And that was the end of the Spencer company. Now, Spencer himself continued to invent. He was, this, this, as I say, a passionate inventor. He kept on inventing. He invented a shotgun later. Uh, that, that didn't, that, it was perfectly good, but it didn't succeed in the marketplace. So he, he his name is never, did not survive um, other than in those interested in historical firearms. I found him a terribly appealing character from what I, I read about him, uh, and uh, including stuff he had written. He uh, told his daughter towards the end of his life that, uh, that he was sorry he didn't leave them riches, but at least uh, he didn't leave them any enemies. And I would imagine that some of the other folks all left enemies. He did leave one child whose name was Percival Hopkins Spencer. He left, he left a couple of children. One of them was a fellow named Percival Hopkins Spencer, who was also an inventor, who invented, uh, d designed and built amphibious aircraft that were used in World War II. And in 1929, he broke the uh, light airplane altitude record. And actually, uh, what I read was that he, he took his father, Christopher Minor Spencer, the inventor of the repeating rifle, Took him up in one of his airplanes at least once. So I have this wonderful image of this colorful, boyishly exuberant uh, inventor named Spencer in his, in his 80s, uh, go, uh, an inventor of a repeating rifle from the Civil War, riding in an airplane designed and built by his son. I th that's an image I just love. And, so, and, and they, yeah, Spencer, Spencer's my guy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and, and as you said earlier, someone who had invented one of the first automobiles as well. So from an early right. automobile to an airplane in yep. his lifetime. So I wanted to go back to the patent question. We have about 10 minutes left in our conversation. And it, it, you said in the early days there was a great deal of sharing. But at some point in the story that you tell, there were patent wars going on between these people. Tell me about how, how when the patent question really arose among them. I guess it, ro it arose, it, it arose, it arose, it arose, it arose slightly, uh, um, gradually. 
the biggest the biggest event happened in in eighteen fifty and eighteen fifty one when Colt had made a was defending his patent against uh, infringers because the revolver was extremely successful. Somebody would try to make one, and uh, Colt would go after him. Well, I mentioned uh, Daniel Baird Wesson, um, his older brother Edwin. Edwin had invented a kind of a revolver with somebody else. Edwin dies bankrupt. Um, they try to salvage the company, uh, salvage any kind of thing out of the out of the Wesson uh, debris by making a Wesson revolver. And they do that. Well, Colt hears about that, and he sicks a very talented patent attorney against this revolver, which was being made by then called the Massachusetts Arms Company. So they go after him in a patent battle that is watched all over the country because the, the meaning of patents and intellectual property in firearms particularly, but elsewhere, was, was at issue. And it was a slam bang uh, trial um, involving top flight lawyers. Uh, the Massachusetts Armed Company hired a fella um, who was uh, called uh, Rufus Choate, who one paper described as a great galvanic battery of oratory. And they, they hammered it out in a Boston courthouse and Colt won and crushed uh, the Massachusetts Arms Company and therefore crushed young Daniel Baird Wesson. Uh, so you have a lot, and, and after, the, after the case was over, Colt's lawyer went out and made it quite clear, anybody wants to mess with my client's patents, uh, you'll have to deal with me, and you'll suffer the consequences. Um, people were holding on to their patents, and people were fighting for them from then on. And then Wesson himself, they were involved in patent fights. So yeah, those became significant. You tell uh, the story of these uh, industrialists, and as in the 1850s, as the rise of sectionalism was apparent, uh, that they saw that war was likely to come and ramped up production. A question for you, did all of these companies sell to both sides in the Civil War, or, or were they, in fact, supporters of the, the National Union? Uh, they ended up at least supporting the, uh, the uh, Union. Colt uh, was known for selling to militias in the South and before the Civil War. And actually, he got excoriated by the New York Times for uh, selling to both sides. This is early on. Uh, and he, but he eventually said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, no, no, I'm a, I'm a good union man. I will not keep selling to, uh, to people who might take the guns against us. Uh, the uh, uh, Spencer, with his repeating rifle, his backers were people named Cheney. I think it's, it's spelled the same way as Dick Cheney, C-H-E-N-E-Y, but I believe they pronounce it Cheney. But they were abolitionists. They were very much in favor of uh, anti-slavery and uh, were, were and that, that, I believe, motivated them to a large extent. Uh, Winchester, he was a good union man. But he was an elector to Lincoln in, in 1864, in the 1864 convention. Uh, Remington, they were, they were union people, too. So I, I, don't, I don't think, I think with Colt was the only one who's, let's say, whose moral compass was not as rigidly pointed north as uh, until later. But the others, I think, were. 
So there was a great ramp up in production during the Civil War of arms. And when it was over, there was excess inventory across all these companies. You write that after the war, America renegotiated its relationship with weaponry. How so? Well, well, for one thing, a lot of the, all those old other companies went bankrupt. The, uh, these companies uh, began to look more and more towards the civilian market. They wanted, they wanted to, to arm people. They wanted to have people buy their products. If they weren't in the military or in the U.S. military, they were going to be in the uh, civilian population. But they were also looking abroad. Uh, Remington did some marvelous business with, not with a repeating firearm, but with a very strong, very efficient single-shot rifle uh, that they were able to peddle to countries all over the place, the Papal States to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, Winchester was selling uh, to Egypt uh, uh, and to Turkey, though they got into some uh, problems dealing with Turkey. Um, Smith and Wesson were selling to the Russians, selling to the Russian military. So these companies were, were, were really trying to find a market wherever they could. And they were also good at advertising. So at the end of the book, we have about five minutes left. You, uh, you, as you reference, you close with the Battle of Little Bighorn. So I'm curious about why you included that. This book is for readers is a portrait of the men who built these nationally and internationally known arms companies, but really doesn't deal so much with the consequences of the arms that they built. And yet you end with the Battle of Bighorn, where there was an enormous consequence for Native Americans with the arms that were developed. Why did you do that? Well, to be honest with you, I was looking for an ending, and I thought Big, Little Bighorn was was so dramatic and it tied in with with the with it tied in perfectly with the 1876 centennial exhibition which uh is was an end which which mirrored the 1851 uh british exhibition which i talked about early in the book but little bighorn is is really shows the i guess the massive amount of death and carnage I guess from arms, and uh, the Indians had them had had the uh, repeater rifles. The uh, troopers, the U.S. troopers, did not. It was just, I think, a further escalation of armed combat uh, that I think the repeaters played a role in. They didn't they didn't determine the outcome, but also it also echoes an early chapter I have in the book, which was the which was a fight between Texas Rangers and the Comanche Indians in Texas, in which the uh, Texas Rangers emerged victorious thanks to their the Colt revolver. Uh, so it, it sort of echoes that. Um, I felt it was, a, it was a proper bookend. Well, I had a friend of mine who said, why are you ending with Little Bighorn? Why don't you end with something, something different that's more tied in with the gun makers? And I thought I could get away with it, and I think I did. Um, um, but uh, some people said, oh, I should have gone in farther into dealing with John Moses Browning, who was a great uh, gun inventor of the latter part of the 19th century, who was an enormous influence on firearms, including ones that are made today. But that would have taken me outside of a core period of time with the core individuals that would have made it, I think, too much of a rambling book, uh, would have would have 
would have lost its focus, especially he didn't interact with any of the other characters. So I don't in, know if that answers your question. Sure, it does. But, from, <laughs> and from a writer's perspective. Uh, yeah, it, well, but to be honest, I was trying to grab at it and I thought the story was cool and I thought the Winchesters played a role. Uh, there were some people who said that the, that the Winchesters made a difference um, for the Indians. I don't think they really did. And I, I think that's the conclusion of the recent scholarship as well. So I guess so to sum it all up, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you can say, having spent all this time with these six men and the companies they built, how would you summarize the impact that they had on our country and on our society? I think they, they helped to feed, to bolster a gun culture that preexisted them. Uh, I think that uh, they, uh, for good or ill, I think they also advanced mass production. Colt did. Uh, the Springfield Armory did. Uh, the development of machine tools uh, came from from some of them. Uh, Spencer, for one, another fellow named Simeon North, back in 1816, he developed. He used the first sort of milling machine here in the country. But I guess it's because of they wanted to emphasize the romance of the gun at the time. They succeeded in doing that. They continue to enhance the romance of the gun today for, for good or ill. John Bainbridge Jr.'s new book is called Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America and the Men That Invented Them. Thank you for spending an hour with me. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 